Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey. Hey, how is your summer of quarantine wrapping up? Uh, well, I'm definitely ready for fall. <laughs> so last weekend, our heat index or whatever the feels like temperature was, was 105 degrees. And I know we're not alone in that, Mm -hmm. but I am very, very much over it. (laughs) I love summer, but man, mid-August, I feel this way every year. So in a way, it's kind of nice to have a familiar complaint that doesn't have anything to do with COVID. (laughs) It's true. <laughs> you know, yeah. So uh, I'm looking forward to some cooler weather, some changing seasons, sort of. We don't, that isn't really a thing here, but the leaves will fall off the tree. So <laughs> something you can count on. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Something I can count on. But um, I don't know how things are going in North Carolina, but Mississippi has reopened schools and a lot of schools are in person. Hundreds of students and teachers across the state are currently quarantined due to exposures Hmm, in schools. I mean, who would have thought? So I think everyone is a bit worried about all of that. So I don't know. How's school going for Sammy? It's going. This is the first week and right now it's kind of an orientation. Because our county provides devices and hotspots to people who can't provide them. So I think they're that's awesome. yeah, they're getting up and running with that. We opted for the full academic year to be virtual. Um, so Sammy's in kindergarten. And, you know, it's kind of a mixed thing because I get to hear at least her side of the conversation she's having with her teacher and with this other student. They're in little groups right now. And it's actually very sweet mm. to get to listen in on kindergarten because Aww. if she were physically going to a building, we wouldn't see any of that. So it's right. it's not what I had hoped for her by any stretch, but there are some positive things about it. And I think that her teachers are just doing a great job engaging the kids via the screen. However, that means half of my day is spent monitoring school. So mm-hmm. just so you all know, mm-hmm. in light of that and, and other things in our various worlds and circumstances, we're going to keep mm-hmm. our episodes on the shorter side, at least through the end of 2020. Uh, so mm-hmm. we're kind of in the vein of the last episode. We're going to be fo- focusing on something that Ashley and I have both been reading and kind of talk about what it's meant for us and just more broadly about this particular author. And we're talking about Sue Monk Kid, one of yes! our favorites. I know. I'm so excited. I know, me too, because we've talked about her a little bit, but we have not dedicated a whole episode to her. So Mm -hmm. she is going to be our focus, and we're going to talk about her latest book that came out this year called The Book of Longings, which I'm not quite done with, but I know you are. Mm -hmm. And no spoilers, Mm -mm. no major spoilers in this. So if you haven't read it, feel free to listen to this. We're not going to give away the plot, um, especially because I only know half of it. Yeah. So, um, but we're going to dive into just kind of what Sue Monk Kidd as an author has meant for us and, and this book in particular, why we're resonating with it so much. So Ashley, when did you first learn about Sue Monk Kidd and her work and what did you read first? So I remember years ago when The Secret Life of Bees was a movie and mm-hmm. I guess her book was just everywhere because of that. But at the time it was kind of branded as like chiclet. You know, and so I would see Mm. it on a shelf and just kind of walk by and not give it any attention, which is a shame because that means I was pretty late to the Sue Monk Kid party. I did not read her work until about a year ago when a friend recommended Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which we briefly mentioned in our 
self-help episode, I think in our listener request episode at the end of 2019. Mm-hmm. So we've talked, we've mentioned it a few times before, but we've never really dug into it. And so I'm really excited to get to flesh it out a little more in depth today because that book was just a breath of fresh air for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of books out there written by Christian women who challenge the patriarchy of like the big capital C church. But something about this book resonated more with me than those. I think just the timeliness of it, where I was in my life, and I think timing just has a lot to do with it because I think if I'd read it 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been ready for it. It just wouldn't have made sense maybe, and I wouldn't have connected with Mm -hmm. it. So what about you? That was my first introduction to her as well. And I want to say that she wrote that book in the 90s. And yeah. she, she wrote it not as a as a young woman. I mean, she her her daughter would have been, you know, she was a parent at that point. So I feel like mm-hmm. some of the books you're talking about are from younger women deconstructing their faith, which is fine. But I think mm-hmm. she was writing it at a very different stage in her life and maybe just has a different perspective than some of those other other books. But mm-hmm. I remember I was driving with my mom. We were driving from Connecticut, from Georgia to Connecticut to go to New Haven where I started divinity school in 2005 and we stopped halfway. This is a long drive and there was a hotel and a Barnes and Noble right by it. And I remember picking up that book. I think I probably was just perusing the religion section of Barnes and Noble Mm -hmm. and the dance, the distant daughter just, just stuck out to me. And I think it was definitely a spirit thing because I needed that book right then. I was Mm. this young Southern girl recovering from evangelicalism, just finished college and moving to New England to attend this Ivy League school. And I felt so out of place. I felt so out of place there. And so reading Sue Monkkid's journey to discovering the divine feminine, because this book is a memoir. She's written a lot of fiction, but this is one of her nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not great at remembering books. I I just, I can kind of vaguely remember plots and things, but the the first scene of that book really jumped out to me because she's telling the story of going to a pharmacy or drugstore or something with her daughter. And she was a, her daughter was a teen. She was down stooped on the floor to pick up something off of of a, a bottom shelf. And there were these two dudes in there. And one said to the other, that's how I'd like to see a woman down on her knees. And she just felt that frozenness and looking at her Mm -hmm. daughter and this moment of just sheer horror. And I think probably, I I can't remember what she said, but I feel like she didn't quite have the words that she wanted in that moment to respond. Mm -hmm. And it was just this like zeitgeist moment for her of tapping into this rage that she'd been burying for so long as this good, you know, Christian Southern good white girl. Yeah. And, like, I was at a place in my life where I was finally tapping into my rage. (laughs) I did a lot of that in divinity school. (laughs) There was a lot of rage happening. And I felt like that book was what first gave me that permission to question those white Southern feminine values that never felt like a good fit to me. um, Mm -hmm. And just explore my own spiritual path. And now, when I think about that book as a mother of a daughter, it is a completely different thing because I, I see that scene, you know, from her perspective rather than from the, the daughter's perspective on the floor. And I'm like, maybe I need to read this book again because I feel like it would have new things to teach me. Yes, to everything you just said, first of all. I'm trying to think what made Dissident Daughter so compelling for me last year. And I think it's that I related so much to the emotional journey that 
Sue Monkhead describes going through in the book and kind of starting with that nagging feeling, you know, something isn't quite right in her church institutions, like you were just saying, like those values, especially that Southern femininity that's kind of woven into Christianity as we grew up with it, something about that didn't sit quite right. And she didn't see her womanhood reflected in church leadership and didn't see didn't feel seen or valued in the same way that men were. And then like kind of recognizing that patriarchy exists outside the church. And what do you do when you admit that what you're experiencing in the church is the same thing of patriarchy and sexism? It's just packaged differently. So Mm -hmm. she just describes that emotional trajectory so well, like the denial and the complacency at first, and then that anger and rage, like you said, at the injustice, and then the loneliness. Mm -hmm. This is what I remember about a lot of the book, the loneliness of when you start to question the status quo and you're just told to be quiet. You're told Mm -hmm. that your doubts are the devil trying to lead you astray. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. You know, you're just told, like, why can't you just not bring this to me when you start to share what you're thinking with other people and they just can't deal with it. And so they tell you to just be quiet and keep it to yourself. And that loneliness is really tough. And then just the grief over losing this really important part of your life and more grief when the people you're closest to don't see it or refuse to see it and refuse to support you in your journey. And then finally that relief when you start to build a new community of support, when you start to allow yourself to let go of the old ways of thinking and start really trusting yourself and your own intuition as the voice and presence of God in you. All along the way, it's so scary though, you know? It's Mm -hmm. just a scary process when you open yourself up to that mystery and questioning. And that is what I felt like she really, she describes that in her book, that it's not this overnight process. It's not this Mm -hmm. awakening that happens like, a bolt of lightning. It's not linear. The like path of deconstructing your faith is not linear. It's confusing. It's often very painful. Your relationships suffer and good things come of it, but Mm -hmm. not everyone in your life understands what you're going through. And that just kind of at the end of the day has to be okay. And all of that echoes my experience so well. And so I think that's what I really, I don't remember specific lines or passages so much as I just remember that feeling of like, oh yeah, this, this makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say is that what I appreciate so much about the book is where her faith journey eventually took her because so many other progressive Christian authors, they write this memoir story arc that, you know, it starts with questioning and maybe they, you know, go on this journey and maybe they leave the church for a while, but they kind of always end up back at a similar place, but just like maybe a more progressive church or a more progressive Uh denomination, you know, but it's still at the end of the day, like making the case for church (laughs) and it's still institutional church, but dissident daughter really takes Sue somewhere else. She goes deeper into her own experience as a woman, her own inner wisdom deeper into the history of the divine feminine and away from church as an institution. And that I think is what felt so subversive about it. She continues to hold reverence for the Christian faith and its place in the story of her life, but she expands beyond it. And 
right now for me in my life that feels truer and more aligned with my experience I don't know Mm. if any of that makes sense but no it does it does and I wonder what community looks like for her if she has if she has community and around sacred conversations I would be so curious to know and as you were talking I was thinking about the book that Barbara Brown Taylor wrote called Leaving Church, where she was, uh, she's a very well-known preacher, and she was in a pastorate, and then she left, but then she just went to teaching. I'm like, well, you just left one institution and went to another mm. one. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so there's so many similarities there of going from like I'm going to be a pastor of a church to I'm going to teach preaching or whatever she did. I'm forgetting all the details, but like you said, I think. Suman Kid actually is carving a new path, and that's very, very different to be a trailblazer and not have a container for the work that you're doing. Although I feel mm-hmm. like that's her writing. You know, she's mm-hmm. carved her own path through her writing. And I don't think I've read all of her books, but I think I've read most of her fiction, if not all of it. And when you brought up The Secret Life of Bees, I think I was an early reader of that because I had read The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. I think I read Dance of the Dissident Daughter first. But there was a line that did stick out to me, one of the few. I guess her books do stick with me more than other ones. But she, there's this line where she says, everybody needs a God who looks like them. Mm-hmm. And back when you could have favorite quotes on Facebook, that was one of mine. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just resonated. I was like, ah, this is why we can't talk about God as this white old man. Because we, if we're all created in the divine image, then we all have to be able to see ourselves as bearing the divine image. And that means God has to look all kinds of different ways. And so now in 2020, we have this really powerful new novel. Mm -hmm. I think like the most radical of her writing. I do um, too. So far. I hope, I hope it's not the end, but um, the book of longings, which feels like, yeah, this culmination of her spiritual, spiritual journey of deconstruction and reimagining. So if you haven't read it yet, don't worry. Um, we're not going to spoil it, like I said before. And I'm not quite done, but I've really been, it's because I've been savoring this one. I read mm-hmm. like a little bit at a time. Uh, I tried to read it on the Kindle at first and I, I said, nope, I need to order a hard copy. I ordered yeah. it through bookshop. <laughs> and because I just felt like, no, this is a book that needs to be read. Frankly, like the Bible. I mean, it needs to have a physical place in my life. And so just to give you a sense of it, if you don't know what it's about, it's about this ancient woman named Anna who's married married to Jesus. So, you know, this book's mm-hmm. got people all kinds of upset because Jesus <laughs> is married in this book. Um, and we've talked about that before, um, about Jesus yeah. being married. And at first I was like, oh, it's not about Mary Magdalene. Um, I, I know. Love her. <laughs> I had that same thought. So it's kind of like, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this other made up fictional woman named Anna, but she stole my heart right away from the first few pages um, Mm -hmm. because she has ambitions to be a writer. And that was not something that women were permitted to explore all of the time. And, you know, it is about her marriage to Jesus, although I don't feel like that's really the central part of the book. It's it's part of her life. It's not the defining part of her life, I would say. And if yeah. you can hear Sam screaming out there, apologies, but there's <laughs> noise. So it's fine. This is it's life. 2020 <laughs> background noises. Exactly. Yeah. But I love their marriage because Jesus really, like, they really honor one another. They honor one another's mm-hmm. desires to do something that has never been done before. Mm-hmm. And it's, they learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um 
And I remembered listening to her interview about this book, and she said it's going to be more about Jesus's humanity. And I was thinking, well, what does that mean? But what I love about it is that he, his ministry in the book is shaped by his own personal experience of being ostracized. Yes. And it's his own pain of being treated like garbage that causes him to realize, I don't want to perpetuate Yep. These systems of oppression within my faith tradition, within my societal traditions. So it's actually in some ways more powerful to read about him as a radical person who is shaped by deciding I'm not going to continue to perpetuate harm against others. I'm going to Mm -hmm. choose love Mm -hmm. instead of harming people. And I don't, I guess you have to read it to get a sense of what I mean, but just reading it within the context of her life and in his active decisions to be different from what he's seen before is just very yeah. powerful. So obviously I have a lot of thoughts. Yes. <laughs> I no. have a lot of thoughts. What are your thoughts? I love your thoughts. And I that came across to me too. Like Jesus's humanity too often in our church where presented this sort of perfect Mm -hmm. uh perfect human and but like what does that mean and and so I don't I don't know I I feel like we don't do a great job humanizing Jesus in the way we talk about Mm -hmm. him in church and so Mm -hmm. I just think that's true you know I just really loved the imagination and the space given to explore that idea and this was honestly a book I could not put down I tried to savor it, but I also just like kind of plowed through it. And I can sum up my experience of reading it as I just felt so seen. It was, Mm -hmm. I, I will try to explain, but like, I just felt so seen. So as you said, the book of longing centers on Anna and she's just a girl when the book starts. And at that time in her life, she's pretty much just considered property. She Mm -hmm. is the property of her father. And when she gets married, she will become the property of her husband. And she knows this. And we get to understand what that knowledge and that experience is like for her Mm -hmm. and for the other women in her life, which not giving anything away, but terrible things happen to women at the hands of men in this book. And there's, zero recourse for any of it Mm -hmm. women Mm -hmm. had no standing to um justice at that time and we know this is common from biblical text we read about it all the time but it's just so easy to gloss over that when 95 percent of the bible centers on the experiences of men or is filtered through a male author and so we rarely rarely get the perspective of what it was like for women at that time and so seeing What it was like from the perspective of a girl who has her own hopes and dreams and goals Mm -hmm. for her life. What it was like for her to realize that none of that mattered because at the end of the day, she was a man's property and had to do what he said. It just felt like an an acknowledgement of a truth that is really left out of Christianity's most sacred text and left out of the way we learn and study that text. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know. It felt like a piece of a puzzle missing for me. So Anna just wants to learn and write and have her words matter. But because she's female, she has to keep that side of her hidden. It's straight up illegal for her to learn how to read and write. 
and frowned upon um, in her culture and her city. And so, um, not trying to spoil anything, she meets Jesus, and Jesus just accepts her and loves her for who she is. Mm. And I love how you characterized their relationship a minute ago, that they honor each other, they learn from each other, that Jesus learned from her mm-hmm. and honored her. And, you know, I think that kind of is at odds with this idea of this perfectly formed, fully formed human that that we're told. Like, a perfect human doesn't need to learn, you know, doesn't right. learn from the people around him because they have all the knowledge they need. And so just just recognizing that humanity and humility was just, I don't know, so big. So in the book, Jesus didn't even want to get married until he met right. Anna. Because of who she was, she was someone who understood God the way he did and would also be okay with him following the call of his own heart. He was up front and said, I think there's something big happening in my life and I haven't wanted to get married because a woman, you know, a marriage would hold me back from pursuing that. And she's like, you do you. (laughs) I have my own call too. So yeah, so they could let each other follow their their own hearts called and he didn't see her dreams and goals as like flaws the way that her family and her community did he saw them as facets of what made her special and what made her special to him and so when you can put yourself in the place of Anna in the story and think about like all of my flaws are what makes me special to the divine you know like Mm -hmm. there's something just truly beautiful in that Mm -hmm. and I don't want to give anything away Also, something I loved, there are elements to the story that deal with how women throughout time have controlled their fertility and prevented Mm -hmm. pregnancy. And to me, it kind of felt like Sue was having fun with the idea that Jesus's wife might have used birth control. And that's why he didn't have any descendants. (laughs) You know, like that idea is really kind of radical. Yeah, Yeah, like separating his sexuality from his progeny. Yes. Yes. Pretty radical. It really is. So that kind of brings me to the main thing I loved about the book, that even though Anna is the wife of Jesus, like you said, his story is not the central focus. The central focus is her and her story, which Mm -hmm. is another thing that feels subversive. I went into this book expecting it to be the story of Jesus as told through a female onlooker. Yes. You know, I've read that. I want to say it was Anne Rice, maybe, that wrote... A book about Jesus from like Mary's perspective. I've read a lot of books, fiction accounts of Jesus's life from his mother Mary's perspective. And it's always like his story and her mm-hmm. pain mm-hmm. and suffering for losing a child, you know, having to watch her son mm-hmm. be killed. Like that's really what it's all about. But um, this book it, at times, <laughs> Jesus's story is just like a footnote. <laughs> He's gone a lot of it. Like he he's just gone. doing his thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which in the Bible he is. He's traveling. Right. He's gone. He's preaching. I mean, so she has other relationships in her life, mainly with women that mean just as much to her as her marriage mm-hmm. does. And I just, um, you know, really love that. You and I started Kindreds, I think in one of our very first episodes, talking about how few examples of female friendship there are in the Bible. And so the Book of Longings just really felt like a remedy for that. Yeah, no, it's so good. I love your description of of the book and kind of where 
it's really centered on her with Jesus as part of the story, but not the central story at all. And I love how we are introduced to these other names in the biblical story and how she's interacting with Martha and Mary. And like, Mm -hmm. it just really humanizes the whole thing. And you get the inside of her inner life, which I think is the richest part of the book. It's this full, rich, full-fledged woman in Jesus's life. Like, who loves him and he loves her. They have, and it's not eroticized. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, it's not, not at all. Their love is very much spiritual love. If that doesn't feel too woo woo, but like what brings them together is a very rich, like spiritual connection that they have. And at first I was like, are they going to over eroticize this relationship between the two of them? Um, but she doesn't do that. And I, I was grateful for that, honestly, that the like their sex life was not really a central part of the book at all. Yeah, um, I, I was a little worried about how I didn't really want to read a like eroticized no. love story with Jesus. That was it would not have interesting felt like, to me. It would have felt voyeuristic or something. Yes. But, mm-hmm. but it's very clear that they have like an intimacy that mm-hmm. on all levels and that it's, they're very much the most important to each other. You can tell that in the way that she writes it. So yeah, I just, I just, I loved, I really have loved it so far. And obviously I'm only halfway through, but you mentioned the importance of other women in the book. And I think that that's very important. And from the very beginning, we get to meet her aunt Yalfa, I guess is how yes. you pronounce it. Oh, Who, she's like, kind of like a witch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you call her a witch or like she's a mystic? And mm-hmm. She's the one who, I mean, Anna knew how to write already, but she's the one who gave her permission and the spiritual tools that Anna needs to change and take charge of her life in these Mm -hmm. very risky ways at times. And there's this opening part, and I think it's so great to to read it out loud, the incantation bowl that her aunt gives her. And Anna decides to write this prayer, which I absolutely love, and I feel like it it very much applies to what we're trying to do, Ashley, and probably to our listeners, too. So I thought I would just read it really quick. So she prays, Lord, our God, hear my prayer, the prayer of my heart. Bless the largeness inside me, no matter how I fear it. Bless my reed pens and my inks. Bless the words I write. May they be beautiful in your sight. May they be visible to eyes not yet born. Mm -hmm. And when I am dust, seeing these words over my bones, she was a voice. Mm, That gave me chills. (laughs) I know. It's like replacing the prayer of Jabez to me. Oh, please. <laughs> please let's, let's just make a book that. about this prayer. We can write a whole book about like this one prayer yes. that she says. And one other just like funny thing I think about the book, because obviously they're using male language for God in the book. It would mm-hmm. not have made sense for them not to. But it doesn't bother me in this book because the way they talk about God is so much the like divine within all of us that I was like oh this is actually not even really off-putting to me that they're using male language for God Mm -hmm. which would have been historically accurate I'm like it's not a distraction in this book because it's really about like expanding our ideas of the divine so I just thought that was interesting I don't know if you reacted to that at all but I was like no this is okay this makes sense I don't want to give anything away to you or to anybody else but the second half of the book takes them out of I forget the the setting where they were um, in the first half of the book, but it takes them into a different culture with different oh, ways, good. different ways of thinking about God. Oh, and yes, good. that's what I. One of the things I loved about it was acknowledging that um, other cultures, besides the Hebrew culture and then the later Christian culture, like 
other cultures had understandings of God that were at the time respected. <laughs> like you respected that other families had other ways of thinking about and worshiping mm-hmm. God. And um, you didn't try to convert them to the way you think. You just let them be. And you there was uh, there was kind of an understanding of like that's 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 how they see God. This is how we see God. But at the end of the day, it's was probably the same energy, spirit, oh force. I need like to we're go just finish this book. <laughs> yes. So um, evangelical teaching would say that this book is just basically I don't know popular culture heresy, whatever. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> if folks are interested in hearing more about Sue Monk Kidd, her writings, her life, and her perspective on the Book of Longings in particular. Brene Brown did an interview with her on her podcast earlier this year, and we'll link it in the show notes. I found it hilarious because Brene is just completely fangirling out over Sue. (laughs) She just has like this whole list of all of her favorite Sue Monk Kidd quotes that she keeps like (laughs) quoting back to Sue, and Sue is so gracious through the whole thing and doesn't doesn't take it the wrong way doesn't seem to get embarrassed but i just think it goes to show how much sue's writings mean to a lot of folks like especially white women who grew up in conservative church culture or conservative southern church culture like her writings mean a lot to us y'all so definitely check out that interview Yes, I love that interview so much because I felt like I could vicariously fangirl through Brene Brown. Yes, <laughs> love it. Totally worth the listen. Yep. So that is it for our Kindred's picks of Sue Monk Kid, Dance of the Dissident Daughter, The Book of Longings. We hope you go read them. We love them. And we'll be back in a few weeks. Topic TBD. <laughs> Talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 